As I said before, this Sunday marks the first Sunday in Lent, which is this time of, of recognizing the changing of the seasons, a time really of um, spiritually saying, Lord, bring a springtime to the winter of my heart. Uh, we're, we're asking God to, to come and breathe new life into our hearts to, um, to follow Him more fully and completely as we march toward the celebration of Easter. For many, Lent is a season of slowing down. It's, at least for me, it's a season of saying, Oh my word, I am overextended. I am overdoing about everything in my life. So actually, one of the disciplines Corey and I are employing is a bedtime for ourselves. We, we typically just kind of spiral out of control. And you, If you're a parent, you know how it is. It's like, oh my gosh, it's midnight and I'm just getting to bed and we've got to get up early. So we're saying, you know, we're setting a time. Um, 10.30 if you really want to know. You can check us on that. We want to be in bed by 10.30. And so for us, it's an intentional slowing down. And it's also a recognition of limitations. Like, if I can't get it all done before 10.30, maybe I should not try to do so much. Okay, so that's my own issues. <laughs> but anyway, so Lent can be the season of slowing down. Now, the four Gospels are divided up in such a way that the first two-thirds, roughly, of the four Gospels are at a breakneck speed. Like you get the birth of Jesus and about the first 30-some years of his life in the first two-thirds of, of the Gospels. And two of the Gospels don't even have the account of the birth story. So it's just like... And then, the last third... An entire third of each of the Gospels is like this slug's pace. It's, it's like the last few days of Jesus' life. And it really shows you the emphasis that the Gospel writers want us to pay attention to. That last third of each of the Gospels of, of, of accounting the last hours and days of Jesus' life. There's, it's like they're saying, listen up, pay attention to this part. Today we're picking up in a Lenten series that we started last Lent, and it's called The Road to the Resurrection. And it's simply, what we're doing is walking through Matthew chapters 26 and 27, those last days and final hours of Jesus' life before the resurrection. Now, if resurrection is the, the end of our road, then let's work backwards for a minute. If we think about this logically, a resurrection implies that there is first a death, right? You can't be resurrected if you didn't die first. So there's this death that we're talking about. And if we work backwards, we say, well, what kind of death was that? And of course, we have crosses in church because Jesus was crucified. It wasn't just a regular death. He was executed. And then, well, that begs the question to me, at least, why was Jesus executed? Which we're going to be unpacking over these next several weeks. But the text we have before us this evening talks about a great betrayal. And one of the reasons that started this process was Jesus was being betrayed. There are few feelings that I can think of that are worse than the feeling of betrayal. And there are few betrayals that are worse than I can think uh, than the betrayal of Judas to Jesus. In fact, being a Judas is in now our common vernacular for someone who betrays someone else, isn't it? So, I am preaching out of the gospel, which means good news of Matthew. What good news is there for those of you who have been betrayed or who have done some betraying? What is the gospel for those of us who have been betrayed or have done betraying? 
I encourage you as we look at this text this evening to ask yourself, whom, if anyone, in this story do I identify with? Who do I identify with in this story? Our text this evening is Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. That's where I'm focusing. I want to read the verses right before that too because it's, uh, uh, it's really the same story. It's the same scene. So what we're going to do is start reading in the section where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. And I want to encourage you to stand just as an act of participation in uh, the reading of the Gospel. The story goes like this. Then Jesus came to them in a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and was praying, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father... If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you've come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one who was with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out here with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And all the disciples left him and fled. Holy Spirit, we pray for your help 
as we enter into this text this evening. Let it be more than cliché. Let it be more than a story that many have heard before. I pray for your ministry of making the Word come alive, of helping, helping us to see and appreciate Jesus and the disciples and those in the story. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, each one where we're at, the Word that we need to hear from you. Amen. You may be seated. heart-wrenching story. We, we read through this in our small group on Wednesday night and it's still, it still bothers me. I wish we had more time actually to, uh, to delve into that Gethsemane prayer. I feel like I could preach it every year, but uh, we, we don't have time for that this evening. I refer you to our website. We have it still online from last year, so if you want to hear Gethsemane prayer, there you go. But I did want to read that section for more than just a little bit of context. I wanted to, to point out um, three things. First of all, that Gethsemane prayer piece helps us to get in touch with the fact that Jesus is incredibly vulnerable. Jesus is not a robot. Like I, I, Sometimes we, we see Him do these mighty deeds and these amazing things and see Him teach like no one else has taught. And certainly Jesus is the Son of God. He is incredibly unique and special. But He is also a human. And He is also vulnerable. In fact, He asks His Father that the cup of judgment might pass from Him. And when he realizes that that is not part of the Father's plan, it's his prayer that the Father would then help him to follow through in obedience. If, if it cannot pass from me, then your will be done, not mine. Jesus, the Son of God, is saying, I am finding this really hard, Dad, to follow through on this thing. Will you please help me? Your will be done, not mine. Second thing I want to point out is that Jesus' disciples, they're not just accessories to the story. Okay, so Jesus has the twelve, actually eleven, because now Judas is, is off doing his thing. And then of the eleven, Jesus chooses three, Peter, James, and John. He says, come with me a little bit further into the garden. Jesus is going through one of the most difficult parts of his entire life. He is in utter agony. Luke's gospel tells us that in the garden he was so distraught that when he's praying, he's sweating droplets of blood out of his capillaries. Well, Luke doesn't say capillaries. He probably didn't know about those. But you know what I'm saying. That's probably how it happened. But Jesus is in such agony. He, he really does want His disciples near. He needs them for support. And the third thing, the third reason I, I read that before entering into the text we're focusing on is that we see Jesus' prediction already starting to be fulfilled. Way back in Matthew 26, 34, uh, Jesus predicted that Peter and all the disciples would betray him. Peter in particular would betray him three times before the rooster crowed. And of course, that's a few weeks from now when we get to that text. He will deny Jesus three times. But already in this Gethsemane prayer scene, Peter, James, and John failed Jesus on three different times. Three times he comes to them, asks them to pray, and they've fallen asleep. And there's a hint of something else I'll be pointing out throughout this whole series. And that is the fact that despite these circumstances, where it looks like 
Jesus is being betrayed and where uh, the Jewish authorities and the Roman powers are coming together to apprehend Him and crucify Him. What is really going on and what all the Gospel writers are hinting at is that Jesus is actually in the driver's seat, so to speak. He is allowing these things to take place. He's in control of the situation. Jesus actually knows what's going to happen. And yet, this is the part that blows my mind. And yet, Jesus remains faithful to the Father and faithful to faithless people. Jesus knew His disciples would fail Him. He knew Judas would betray Him. He knows He's going to be left alone. And yet after finding them asleep three times in a row, He says this, Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed to the hand of sinners. Notice the plural here. Let us be going. Get up. Let us be going. Behold the one who betrays me at hand. Let us be going. Jesus still wants our company even when we fail Him three times in a row. And while that's not the main part of my message by any stretch, that is good news. Like if you got anything, that's not a bad thing to take away. That here are these disciples failing Him three times in a row in His deepest need and Jesus says, come on, I still want you with me. Well, the text says that a mob approached Jesus including the crowds... We know that in those crowds there were some temple servants. There's the temple guard. And John's gospel suggests that there are Roman soldiers there as well. Uh, basically, it's the whole world. Okay, Everybody represented Jews, Gentiles, people in power, and common mobs. This mob is armed with clubs and swords. And all the gospel accounts report that Judas led this approach. But Matthew makes sure and lets us know this isn't just Judas. He says, Judas, one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve. One of the twelve closest people to Jesus ever. In his earthly ministry, at least. One of the twelve, one of the trusted, one of those who had received the love of Jesus, who had received the teaching of Jesus firsthand, not just from some crackpot preacher here in Bellingham. Uh, he witnessed firsthand... The power of Jesus, he had participated in the mission of Jesus. Remember that section where Jesus sends out the disciples and they cast out demons and they teach the gospel and they see incredible things happening? Judas was part of that team. For lack of a better term, Judas was a Christian. And this should give, give us, at least it gives me some uh, reason for humility. Because what this means to me is that no one is exempt from betraying Jesus. Uh, sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but I think, oh, it would have been awesome to be one of the twelve, like be in there with Jesus and actually see Him and touch Him and hear His stuff firsthand and, and to see Him do these things right up close and personal. Judas is one of the twelve and still, still, sin had corrupted his heart to the place where he could betray this Lord. Earlier in the chapter, we learned that Judas went to the religious leaders. And he said, what would you give me to betray Jesus to you? They didn't even seek him out. He went to them. They say, I don't know, I just want 30 pieces of silver. He says, I'll take it. 
And 30 pieces of silver, you guys, isn't even the price of a fully grown male slave in that period. They're worth more than 30 pieces of silver. Why Judas does this remains a mystery. Another mystery is why Judas is needed in this narrative in the first place. After all, Jesus wasn't hiding. He was teaching out in the open all the time. Everybody knows what he looked like. Why did they need Judas to point him out? He didn't have an army of his own. But one reason is because the authorities wanted to avoid a scene. Earlier on in this chapter, we learned that they wanted to kill Jesus with stealth. They were concerned that Jesus had this crowd of people beginning to follow him. At one time, remember, he fed over 5,000 people. Who knows how many of those people were actually following him around. But wherever Jesus was, he seemed to attract a crowd. And people might be sympathetic to his cause. So they didn't want to just grab him out in public where it could cause a scene. So they needed an insider, someone who would know maybe his intimate whereabouts, when he might be vulnerable, when he might be alone. And so Judas could help, could help do that. It's also been suggested that they wanted an insider because they were unsure if they could actually take Jesus. I mean, think about this. For all of you fans of superhero movies, just for a minute. Do you think we could just, like, let's say we disagreed with Captain America or something like that? Do you think we could just go with a, a mob of guys with sticks and clubs and go take him out? Like, he'd probably whoop us. And, and so here's Jesus being able to do these amazing things. Not only heal people, but this guy, he casts out demons with the word. He can walk on the sea, not just the calm glass sea, but like a raging storm. And then with the word, he calms it. This guy's got some creepy powers. And it's suggested by a lot of people that they wanted Judas there as almost a confidant. Because they knew that Judas knew him, and Judas wouldn't go do this thing if he was really worried that Jesus might zap him. So Judas gives them some sort of confidence. Regardless... What we have in the story is one of the archetypal scenes of treachery and betrayal ever. Judas, the betrayer, approaches Jesus, greets him as a rabbi, and kisses him on the cheek. It was a preconceived plan that whoever Judas kissed, that was the one they should arrest. Had to be done quickly, kind of like a special forces insertion team. Get in and get out. Don't make a scene. Right? But the manner of this betrayal, I just can't get over. It is so disgusting and sleazy. Uh, first of all, Judas comes up to Jesus and calls him rabbi, which is a fairly accurate title. Jesus was known as a rabbi, but it was so inadequate for who he really was. And if you notice in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' other disciples all call him Lord. They recognize that he is more than just a rabbi. But Judas comes up and says, Hail, rabbi. And then he kisses him on the cheek. Again, a kiss is a fairly common greeting in that period for people who are close, like a disciple and a, and a rabbi. But here's the thing in that culture. The one with more honor always was supposed to initiate the kiss. So here Judas is kind of even coming in with this cold insult. It wasn't such an insult that it would be obvious, but it was enough to kind of be this underhanded insult. Hail, rabbi, initiate kiss. Oh, that's so sleazy to me. <laughs> like, at least Judas could have come up and been like, it's him or something like that, but he does this extra step of sleaziness. Which is why it's all the more amazing that Jesus responds with the word friend. <laughs> I know. What? What? Friend? 
Is Jesus being ironic here? Maybe. It doesn't really fit in with this character though, does it? Jesus being overly ironic. Was Jesus trying to give Judas one more chance? Maybe by saying friend, he was like saying, Friend, remember all the things we've gone through. Do you really want to do this? Jesus had to go to the cross for our sin. It didn't have to be Judas, you guys. There's plenty of other sinners in the world. Maybe that was the reason he called him friend, to give him one more chance. I would even say as far as probably, because that's how Jesus rolls. Always one more chance to the very end. But I think what's really going on here, and this is good news as well, said Jesus really, really loves Judas. He really loves people. He really loves them to the very end that much that he knows what Judas is about to do. And I think he knows, because God knows, how twisted Judas's heart is, how confused he is. And even in the face of that insult, not only of being betrayed, but being slighted in public like that with the kiss and the rabbi comment, Jesus really does love him to the very end. Everyone needs someone who loves them to the very end. Do you agree? Someone who's never going to give up on them. Everyone needs someone who will never stop hoping for them. And if you feel like you don't have that person, good news for you is Jesus is that person. Well, the reality is, besides Jesus, even our closest friends and loved ones will, if they haven't already, betray us at one point or another. How then do we describe this feeling of betrayal? I was trying to think about this. Um, Here are some descriptive terms that I brought up. It feels like something inside you has died. It feels like there's an empty pit in the core of who you are. It feels like the ground you're standing on has been taken out from under you. Feeling betrayed makes you at times want to push other people away because you don't feel safe anymore. And being betrayed is always, always, always a risk of really loving other people. There are so many great books and films with this theme of betrayal that I could bring up. The one that always gets me is the scene in Braveheart where, you know, William Wallace has gathered all these troops, to the Scottish troops, to stand up against the English. He finally thinks he's got the nobles on his side, which would mean the manpower to make a good fight. He comes into the charge. He's ready for the second wave for the reinforcements to come in and the nobles turn tail on him. So he just goes all gung-ho and he starts chasing down the king who gets away, but there's this one black knight. He gets him off his horse. He gets on top of him, rips his helmet off. And what does he see? The face of Robert the Bruce, the one he thought he could count on, the one who swore his allegiance to William Wallace. And that face, Mel Gibson does it so well, that face of just utter shock and betrayal. It was as if he died there. He didn't need a sword to kill him. He didn't need any kind of physical death. He died that day in seeing the face of his friend and comrade betray him. If you've been alive like you are, um, my guess is you've been betrayed to one degree or another. The question isn't if you've been betrayed, but how badly. 
How many times? Your betrayal begins elementary for most of us. Uh, maybe it's when you're a little kid at school and you realize that person you thought was your friend was just making fun of you behind your back. Betrayal happens in our marriages, of course. The obvious but no less painful is marital unfaithfulness by a spouse through adultery. Maybe it's emotional adultery. Maybe it's finding out your spouse or the, your significant other has been hiding an addiction from you, substance, pornography, whatever it is. And it comes to light and you feel less of a person, less whole. Betrayal happens at the workplace when you realize a co-worker is undermining your name and your quality of your work to make themselves feel better. Some of you may have felt betrayed by God when a relational, financial, or health crisis shattered your life. Betrayal takes place in our families of origin at the hand of our parents. Some of you are victims of abuse. Some of you are victims of competing with a parental figure for their addiction to alcohol or drugs. Some of you were betrayed by parents who overworked and neglected you. Some of you were betrayed by your parents who placed their anxieties on you by giving you impossible standards to perform to. All of these betrayals and more. Betrayals of trust and betrayals of power. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows and has felt how it feels when that betrayal chews up your insides. He knows how it makes you doubt your worth on this planet. He knows how it makes you either want to give up or go on the attack. He knows. He bears those same scars in his own soul. And part of the gospel is that He holds you and me in His hands and He offers to take our pain of betrayal onto Himself. Jesus offers freedom so that we can love again someday. And you may not feel like that right now. But that's part of the good news. And this isn't the end of the sermon, but I, let's just take a moment of silence. Some of you might just want to unload that unto the Lord right now. Why pass up the opportunity? Let's take a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for being safe and holy. Thank you for receiving these wounds of ours. And I pray that you would replace the emptiness in our hearts with, uh, with freedom, uh, with love that we didn't think we could feel again, uh, we didn't think could exist in our life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hear our prayers. When we talk about this passage, when we talk about betrayal, Judas, of course, is the first one to come to mind. Um, it's obvious why that would be. But there is another kind of betraying that takes place in the story. 
And the betrayal I'm talking about is the betrayal of Peter and the other disciples. You have to appreciate, I think, how quickly this story develops. Peter and the, and the other two disciples have been asleep in the garden. Jesus wakes them up. You know how it is when you wake up. Think about how tired they must have been to be sleeping while Jesus asked them to pray, right? So they're, they're groggy. Jesus wakes them up. They're not even probably fully with it. He says, Behold, my betrayer is coming. Judas comes up. It's like, what's he? What? Oh, he's back? Hail, Rabbi. Kiss on the cheek. And the narrative says they just seize him right there. What do you do if you're Peter? You're in this groggy state. What the heck's going on? They just grabbed my Lord. John tells us that this disciple who wields the sword is Peter himself. And he swings. And of course he's swinging to decapitate this man. I mean, you don't... You don't swing to like, I'm going to chop off this man's ear. Uh, uh, something tells me this fisherman is not that savvy with the saber, right? Like, uh, he, he's just going for it. The dude probably ducks, gets his ear. Luke tells us it's all good because Jesus heals the ear. And John tells us this guy's name is Malchus, which is most likely there. Because Malchus was probably a man who became a disciple. That's another sermon. Another book of the Bible, but just food for thought. So, Peter... Peter swings at this guy. What do you do if you're Peter? Some would say you do what comes naturally. I disagree. Babies do what comes naturally. Adults do what we have trained ourselves to do. Okay? You do what's in your heart when you're in a moment of crisis. You do what you're used to doing. Most of our life actually functions this way. Uh, think of the sheer amount of energy it would take you to do the things you do every day if you had to consciously think about every detail of your life. For example, uh, take kids for example, because they're great examples of this. It is a huge milestone when a kid gets potty trained. <laughs> it's like just I'm, I'm telling you the truth about that. But I think that there are a lot of other milestones that people overlook. Here's one. When my kid learns to put their shoes on by themselves, all oh, the freedom! Because now you can say, Sophia, go put your shoes on and help your sister do that. It's amazing! And after a kid learns how to put their shoes on and tie them or put the Velcro strap on, they don't have to think about it anymore. It's a slip, slip, and they're on to something else more complicated. The other big milestone, I just want to say this, is when your infant learns how to stick their arm out straight so you can put it through that cotton sleeve. You don't have kids. You just try sticking a wet noodle through a cotton sleeve. It's impossible. But these are huge milestones, and it's so much more helpful when you don't have to think about these little things. So you apply this to your life now. When you went to work, I don't know how you got there, you walked, you drove, you took a bus. I bet you weren't thinking about the route you were taking, unless you just started a new job. You probably just take it for granted that you get in the car, you get on the bus, you start walking, and you show up there because that's what you do every day, right? Like, you, you don't consciously think, you know, where do I turn again? And all that. Or if you work on a computer, you don't think, like, what's that start button? I'm teaching Sophia, our, our oldest, how to um, do basic things on a computer. And, you know, she's fumbling around just the, just the basic layout of the screen. You don't have to think about that anymore. Probably if you use a computer on your job, what you have to think about is how you actually use the computer to do your algorithms or smart things like that. So, um, The fact that we have a rhythm, we have a routine, we've been trained to do the simple things, 
makes our life so much more manageable that you don't have to think, how do I tie my shoe again? And, and you know, how do I walk? How do I breathe? How do I... Am I potty trained? You know, all that kind of stuff, right? Experience and practice pay off because all of these things become automatic and it frees us up to do the higher functioning things. Our knee-jerk reactions in crisis often reveal what is really going on in our heart. So just like you train yourself to tie your shoes and make it to work and do all the basic things, you also are always in training of your spiritual life. You're either forming your heart more towards Christ or it's being deformed. There's, we've talked about this over and over. There's really no neutral in the spiritual life. And what was inside Peter comes out in this, morning, uh, this moment of grogginess, this moment of crisis. And there are some very noble things that come out. First of all, I want to say, loyalty comes out. I love Peter's loyalty. Like he's just willing to... He sees a mob like, whatever, I'm going to go down with this, with the Lord. You know, so he's got loyalty, he's got some courage, he's got strength. Those are all things that, that I would admire, that you admire, I think. Things that were intended for good, and yet, they were actions that really betray his master. Because Jesus, the guy who he'd been, he spent three years with, was teaching over and over stuff like, love your enemies... Pray for those who persecute you. I never once remember a teaching of Jesus cut your enemy's ear off if they try and arrest you. I don't remember that one. Maybe that's in the Sermon of Death Valley or something. But the Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemies. So, so Peter has betrayed these teachings and the way of Jesus. Peter's actions also betray his fear, his anger, his insecurity. What happens? I've left everything. What happens if they arrest my Lord? That guy's kind of my life. And I secretly, you know, I've got kind of these aspirations that when he's king, because he's always talking about this kingdom, well, you know, I might be like one of his main guys. Like, what happens? Peter's being willing to fight took guts. Peter's running after Jesus said to put a sword away was cowardice. But the truly heroic thing would have been for Peter to stay and to listen and to trust Jesus. Think about this for a minute. How might the narrative have completely changed if Peter was obedient to Jesus in that situation? If he had met this act of violence and aggression with nonviolence? How would the story have been different? How would Peter's witness have maybe affected Judas and some of these other people? Would it have melted their hearts in any way? Would Peter have become a martyr at that point in time and spurred on a quicker uh, coming to faith in Jesus? We will never know. How did Peter betray Jesus? I think this is the fa fundamental part of it. He wasn't practicing the life that Jesus was modeling and teaching. A life of abiding in the Father. We said it before. Jesus was not a robot without emotions. Obedience to the Father. When Jesus puts on flesh, obedience to the Father isn't just like, I can do no other. Jesus always had choices. In the garden, He's crying out, Please take this cup of judgment from me. And when He realizes that's not the Father's way, He then prays, oh, Strengthen me. Help me to carry this out. Why? Because it's not natural. It's not natural to die. We're made to live. 
And I think what Jesus does is He abides in the Father so much that He's able to trust Him that there is going to be light at the end of this thing no matter how ugly it gets. Jesus was devoted to abiding in the Father. That's how He's able to obey to the point of death. It's how He was able to take the abuse He would receive. It's how He knew the Father's love was so deep and so unshakable that it would survive all of these things. Peter, on the other hand, acted like I do and acted like, I guess, you so often do. Instead of praying, he fell asleep. Maybe Peter thought, you know, in a situation like this, prayer would be impractical. We're in the garden and Jesus is good at praying. He can go pray. We need a good night's sleep, just in case Jesus needs a little muscle, needs a little backup, needs us to do some stuff for Him, we'll get a good night's sleep. Prayer's not that important when there's real stuff to be done, right? Who knows what He was actually thinking. What we do know is that it wasn't Peter's habit to turn to the Father in times of need. It was his habit to turn to his own resources. What we do know is that because Peter didn't pray, he didn't know what the will of God was. And because he didn't know what the will of God was, he didn't know how to best stand with his friend and Lord Jesus. Peter betrayed Jesus by not abiding in Him, by not being spiritually ready to follow Him. (laughs) How often do we betray Jesus? By not being spiritually ready, by not actually listening to Him to know where He wants us to focus our energies. How often is it our habit to do before we pray and study the Scriptures? To jump to common sense, right? That makes so much sense. But don't we often jump to common sense when there is nothing common or necessarily sensical at all about Jesus and His kingdom? After all, what rational sense does it make to have all the power in the universe and 12 legions of angels at your disposal. 12 legions is 72,000 angels. Something tells me one angel could have kicked that mob's butt. Jesus has got 72,000 angels at his disposal. What sense does it make to have all that power and have the heart of goodness and not use it? I would not be good with the ring of power in Lord of the Rings. Right? I see my Boromir all over myself in this. Right? What logic it is, is it if you're the savior of the world to allow yourself to get arrested by a mob at night? What logic there in a, is there in a God who dies for his people rather than mete out justice that they deserve? How arrogant I am and we are to think we know what Jesus wants if we have not spent the time with Him to listen to what He wants. Well, as you can tell, I see myself all over the story. Judas becomes, uh, he's the betrayer who comes to Jesus knowing when he approaches him, he's going to betray his friend. He addresses him as rabbi, which is at least a term of respect and deference. And you know, I do the same every day. Well, not every day. Uh, Most days, I come to the Lord. 
and I call Him Lord, when I know there's deep places in my heart where I really want to be Lord, and where I really think I am Lord over those certain areas of my life, it's the same thing as Judas, calling Him a title and then acting a completely different way. And then Peter takes up his sword. Peter feels the betrayal. He takes on Jesus' betrayal on himself. He wants to preserve honor. He wants to work for justice. And I do the same. In the name of justice, I look to justify my anger at people and to rationalize my worldliness saying things like this. After all, that's just how the world works. And just like Peter, I am guilty of far too often relying on the resources of my own flesh and my own mind, putting my full weight on the ways of the world rather than trusting in Jesus first and His crazy upside-down kingdom. And herein lies the ultimate betrayal story in this betrayal story. Thus far, We've been using the word betrayal in its purest sense, right? To deceive, to perform an act of treachery, to be a traitor. But there's another way the word betrayal is used in our vernacular. Think of the game of poker for a minute. I'm no good at poker. Eric's pretty good and Ryan. But uh, anyway, so you've got your cards, right? And the idea is you want to have a poker face. You do not want to give the other players an advantage of what is in your hand. So when you draw... You don't want to have any expression. But sometimes, your eyes can betray what's in your hand. You might get a twinkle of optimism and people say, Oh, damn, I know what you got! Or they might droop in pessimism. And people know, Oh, he's bluffing, he's got nothing. Right? Your eyes can betray you what's really going on inside. In this story, Jesus betrays his big plan. He betrays the gospel in the best sense of the word, meaning... Jesus reveals His plan. He has at His disposal the power of the universe, as we said before, 72,000 angels and a direct line to the Father. He could stop the hearts of His attackers. I, I don't even want to know the mind powers or whatever Jesus can do. Like He could say, you guys should just stop existing and maybe they would all fall into mush or something like that. Who knows what Jesus could do? All we know is that He could do whatever He wants. You know, in John's Gospel, as the mob approaches, we get a little glimpse of this because when Jesus speaks to them, they all fall back on their bums. And then they shake it off and get up and arrest Him. But there's this sense that Jesus could totally own this situation. But Jesus betrays His ultimate obedience to the Father and His unimaginable love for us when He allows Himself to be arrested. Jesus has shown His hands. He is betrayed at the hands of His created image bearers and He takes it on Himself. Jesus decides then to take out justice what's deserving on us, and He takes it out on evil and death. He absorbs our sin and our shame, and He absorbs our consequences. And Jesus knows how lost we are, how confused our hearts are. He knows our betrayal, and He knows our betrayers. He knows our wounds. He knows that betrayed people betray people. And I think that Jesus knows that the only way to break this chain of perpetual sin and betrayal and betrayal and betrayal 
is for someone to come from the outside and to break that chain and to take it on himself and to offer us something new and pure and good. And so it is that Jesus invites us to put our trust in him, the true hero of the story, true love himself. Would you pray with me?